Hey everybody, it's Max, riding solo today with half-assed show notes because 99 is off somewhere either fighting crime with 101 or she's just off being a kid, you know, as kids do. It is the latter, by the way. She's off being a kid, doing those kind of fun things, catching a concert, taking in some rays, hanging with some friends, as she should be doing. And I'm very happy for her. Manny is somewhere. Manny's been all over the place. I mean, literally all over the place. His world tour, well, it's it's an American tour right now, uh, although he has been known to do some international speaking events, but he's been all around the country as well. I just got back from a wedding that was spectacular, but uh, I find myself alone in the studio today. So welcome to the most half-assed, fumfering edition of Show Notes to date. First thing to note, just want to thank Jay and Amanda again. They featured uh, our Indian boarding schools episode in the 6-1 edition of Best of the Left, titled The Great Replacements. And we were in great company with Democracy Now!, uh, What Next!, John Kane, among others. So I always appreciate the love and support from Jay and Amanda at Best of the Left, and I hope that you support them as well. Quick update before we get into feedback today. We've got an update on Jessica Cisneros' campaign. It looks like the douchebag Henry Cuellar unfortunately extended his lead a bit since election night. I believe they're going to request a recount because it's within the margin to do so, but it is not looking great. Nevertheless, I want to thank all of the unfuckers that came out of the woodwork to offer their support and their donations to her campaign. Great candidates don't always win the race. And we saw what Nancy Pelosi and her pack did to back Henry Cuellar, even in the most extraordinary of circumstances with two of the main issues that Cuellar gets really wrong as a Democrat, first being abortion and reproductive rights and the second being uh, gun control. He couldn't there couldn't have been more messages delivered from on high that uh, this guy isn't the right guy. There's a lot more of them, obviously, but uh, that was a campaign that we were we were really looking forward to, to flipping. Didn't happen. Doesn't look like it's going to happen, but we can hold out hope in a recount, I guess. Uh, Down Underfuckers had all the fun recently with the ousting of Scott Morrison, as we covered, and uh, the election of Anthony Albanese. Eurofuckers. The Eurofuckers in the UK want to get in on the action with a possible disturbance in the force over there. Now, we're recording this right before the no-confidence vote on Boris Johnson, so I'm curious to see how exactly that shakes out and how shaky the ground is beneath him. My guess is he will eke it out. Who knows? We'll see. Um, But it's interesting that the dynamic is really changing over there in the UK, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. And back stateside... Progressive nominee for the Senate in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, said that he is in good shape following his stroke so long as he follows the doctor's orders. But as long as it's not his confirmed opponent, Dr. Oz. (laughs) Dr. Oz finally given the green light after David McCormick dropped out of the race. And this one will certainly be fun, if not strange, to watch. But it won't be as fun or as strange as watching former NFL star Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock in Georgia. You could not have a more qualified candidate going against a less qualified candidate in this extremely important race. And it's just really unclear how political events and uh, social and civic events in the United States are going to influence the outcome for the midterms. It might have all 
happen too early or the shit show will continue to happen. Of course, I'm talking about the shooting in Texas, the mass shooting. There have been a number of mass shootings since then, of course, uh, which is just horrifying. And I know our international unfuckers are looking in wondering uh, if we're ever going to get our shit together. I don't know. And I don't know what any of this pretends for the midterms, but it's certainly going to be a weird and wild time. So we do have some shit to look forward to on the pod that I wanted to go over. I think my voice just cracked like Bobby Brady. One of them is, as I mentioned in our congressional summer school episode, which is the one we're going to be unpacking in a bit, We're going to do a quick dive into different pending bills all summer long at the conclusion of each full unfucking, just to kind of continue our legislative theme this year. We'll talk a little bit about how that episode shaped up and why we're doing that, but I think it's really important for us, instead of just kind of weighing in generally on what goes on in the U.S. and the the sausage making that is the legislative process in this country, we spend a lot of time kind of shouting at the rain that Congress blows And Congress does blow, but we should be looking at why exactly they blow instead of just saying that they're not pulling the country in the direction that that we would want to go. Well, let's look specifically at how they're doing it. Plus, it opens up some doors and some ideas for how to advocate for the bills that are most important to us. But I'm also super excited that we're going to be launching a new periodic feature called Phone a Friend that gets us out of our comfort zone a little bit. I really am excited about this one especially because our inaugural drop, which is going to be in the next couple of weeks, is with, uh, we, have, we have two people that are going to appear on the show. So this is the first time we're coming out of our scripted version of the show, and we're going to be talking to people. And we could not have a more dynamic introduction to this with two incredibly smart people to kick off that feature. So look out for that one. Uh, and, you know, bit by bit, we're diversifying the feed as we continue to build our knowledge base and and build our audience for the show. So we've got our full on fuckings. Of course, we've got quickies, topical cream, and now phone a friend coming with one more cool feature on the docket before, I would say, before the fall. So more toward the end of the summer, we're going to be introducing a new feature into the show. So all good stuff, all made possible by unfuckers who have supported us through purchasing our native roasted coffee, one-time donations like tips in a tip jar from buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. And of course, our loyal members. We're up to more than 200 members now. That's more than 200 of you that support Unfucking the Republic with a monthly membership. I could not be more thrilled about that. Remember, we were joking how when we said a few months ago, wow, we hit 99 members, and then a bunch of people wrote in and they're like, you only have 99 members? Well, members are hard fought. They're hard to come by. You're talking about people parting with money on a monthly basis out of their budget during an incredibly inflationary period, no less, all to just to support our show. So you've got, you know, people paying nine or $14 a month for Netflix and then people paying any anywhere between five and $50 a month just to keep funding the show so we can keep doing what we're doing. I think it's extraordinary. Would I love to have thousands of members? That would be, of course, game changing and would actually probably bring on a staff of writers and we would be crushing this thing. But I've learned over my business career that there is no better way to build something than to build it slowly with a really good, loyal, passionate following. And that's exactly what we're doing here. It still exceeds my expectations for when we launch the show. Everything, every, every bit about this exceeds my expectations. And I am just so unbelievably grateful 
to the audience of unfuckers from around the globe that have coalesced to support the show and are meeting each other online. I love that aspect of it. So thank you, everybody, for doing that. Oh, and don't forget, this Friday, June 10th, is Fuck Milton Friedman Day. So we're going to look for unfuckers to kind of get loud on social media, see if we can get the FMF hashtag going, promote awareness of the show, and maybe even share, if you don't mind, go back and find our Fuck Milton Friedman episode and share that out so you can introduce new people to the pod and show them what we're all about. We'll remind you about it as we get closer to it, but that is this Friday, which should be a couple of days after this drops. And without further ado, let's get into some feedback this week. Now, it should go without saying that I am going to likely miss a bunch of shit in 99's absence because you know that she's responsible for this and I'm doing my level best to fill in. Uh, It will be, as I said, half-assed, but I'm going to do my best. So uh, if you wrote in and I missed it, we will circle back to it next week. Uh, was 99 pours through all the comments and shakes her head and kicks herself in the ass for taking any time off and leaving me to my own devices. But with that said, let's get into emails. The first one is from Inigo G, who said, you should get into reparations. I know it's a huge topic, very divisive with so much racial hate. Not asking for your opinion on its viability, though feel free. Well, thanks, Inigo. We would just like more people to see how this topic is discussed on both sides. The anti-reparations crowd is problematic. So one of the times that we delved into reparations was early on. I believe it was in our culture cancel episode, or it might have actually been in a budget episode that we did prior to that. The argument that I was making was that I'm a believer, by the way, in reparations, and I believe that it can be done. I believe that there's a path forward for it. And I think a lot of it can be done through the auspices of agencies, of government agencies that already exist. Now, we've seen what's possible in terms of sending money to people in need during the pandemic. It's one of the biggest arguments that we had for making the child tax credit a child direct payment into people's bank accounts. And we saw the difference that that made in terms of immediately reducing poverty in this country, extreme poverty in this country. Well, I think reparations can be handled in a similar way. The argument that we made for a test case was to actually do it with all uh, affiliated native peoples in this country. Now, I say affiliated because it would be a program through the U.S. federal government, which wouldn't be perfect, but in so much as there are already documented procedures to uh, track uh, tribal status and affiliation, there is a mechanism in theory for us to be able to send direct payments to indigenous people in this country. And so I'm talking about native people, First Nations people within continental United States. uh, And then of course, uh, native Alaskans, native Hawaiians as well. I believe that there is a mechanism to do this that makes a lot of sense that would accomplish a couple things. One, it would write wouldn't right a historic wrong, but it would be an attempt to acknowledge a historic wrong. It would also be a a test for the effectiveness and the efficacy of a program that helps lift people out of poverty. And I don't think it needs to be done forever, but I think it can be done on a sustained basis over several years to help groups that are historically marginalized through no fault of their own and in this case, a conquered peoples who live in the most difficult of environments. And we've gone on a deep dive in terms of why structurally it is near impossible 
for people within native territories to thrive because they are outside of any sort of systematic approach to uh, moving up uh, through uh, upward mobility. Meaning if you live on a native territory, you can't get a mortgage because there's no bank that could go actually reclaim the property that is uh, that be is being leveraged, right? You can't go repossess a house. You can't you know, put a house in foreclosure that's on a reservation territory. Things like that, little nuances like banking systems just don't, a lot of these people are unbanked because they fall outside of the normal purview of what we would be able to consider collateralization. There's so many systemic issues that come along with the native territories that it makes it almost the perfect proving ground for a type of reparations that can help these people uh, lift out of poverty. And of course, in addition to that, we should also be sending as much money for health and human services into reservation territories for them to be able to determine on their own in self-determination how that money is deployed for health and human services on tribal areas. But those type of plans in conjunction, I think, would be a great proving ground for any sort of reparation bill in this country. And I am not opposed to trying to at least chart a path forward to that. So, Inigo, those are my thoughts on it. Uh, and to the extent that you wanted me to just bring it up so it's con- it continues to be in the ether, there you go. Now, Atomic Dog wrote in and said, I've been meaning to write in to thank Elena S. for her podcast recommendations. Atomic Dog has been binging La Verdadera Historia de Mexico, learning so much. So there you go. Some more connective tissue between the unfucking community. So thank you, Elena S., for sending in your recommendations. And Atomic Dog continues and says, while listening to Convention of States, I was also one of those listeners thinking of the attempt to amend the Constitution to address money and politics. After listening to the episode, I understand the reluctance to go this route, but it seems to me a bit cowardly. It may simply be practical given the right organization and head start on these matters, but it makes me think that the left needs to get its act together to give them a real counter argument. Chileans are in the midst of rewriting their constitution that was passed by the neoliberal Pinochet government. I just listened to a podcast episode of Know Your Enemy with guest uh, Thea Rio Francos talking about how the Chilean public don't feel like their constitution is set in stone or given from on high. Why does the U.S. venerate the founders as though they were demigods that were able to foresee all potentialities, even though the ideal they settled on didn't even live up to its own values? Uh, Yeah, so two things here. The first is with respect to the founders and their intent with the Constitution. Anybody that has studied the Constitution, that has studied the founding, that has, as we've said before, read the Federalist Papers and seen them working through a lot of this process will understand that it was always intended to be a living and breathing document. We know this because they spoke at length and wrote at length and argued at length about the original sin of slavery in this country and basically punt in order to form a union, they had to punt on that seminal issue, but they left it open to interpretation down the road when things would be different in society and economically things would be different as well. It was always their belief that they never would have been able to get the union founded with that institution being codified They knew that at some point it would have to change, and that's why they gave us the mechanism to change the Constitution. That's why every originalist that you've ever heard from is just wrong. There is no way that you can possibly be 
a believer in democracy or what the founders intended and also be an originalist. Those two things do not square. They never do. And you're always in the right to argue against any sort of originalist interpretation of the Constitution. As to why we just hold it so sacrosanct, what's interesting about this is if you, if you back up a little bit and you take some of the passion out of it, it is, I think, fair to look at it and say this was a very well-crafted document. This was a very well-crafted process because it allowed for change over time. It's just the change is slow and often doesn't reflect the will of the people. So much goes into actually moving the rudder and moving the giant ship that is America in the right direction. And there are still too many fail-safes in there to have it surge in the wrong direction again. Uh, but that is the sausage. That is that is what this democracy is all about. I mean, you can see it. Like, there hasn't been a successful amendment, I think, since the 70s, and that was about uh, pay, right? Congressional pay, except for the one that was codified in, in the 90s. That was an amendment that actually, you know, was originally passed in the early 1800s, but it was a loophole that people missed. That's a whole different fun story. But the bottom line is we haven't really had any success amending the Constitution or taking a stab at really, really big sweeping legislation since a lot of the legislation that we saw under LBJ's Great Society. Period. End of story. There have been a few attempts to do some big things around the margins, but the big stuff really happened before that. And a lot of that is as a result of this, I don't know, bizarre right-wing attempt to equate patriotism with originalism. And it's, uh, it's not good. Now, should it be as flexible as other constitutions? Probably not. I mean, there are constitutions that get thrown out completely and, and often rewritten. I kind of like the fact that we've got a very, very rigid framework, but we do have to have some ability to manipulate it along the way to make things make sense for the times that we live in. Now, as far as Atomic Dog's suggestion that we actually grab hold of the Convention of States concept and flip it, that's tricky to me. And I, and I know it's a little bit of cowardice to try and stay away from something that the right is pushing for. And the idea on the left has been to form their own convention of states action, uh, which has taken off in a number of states, by the way, in order to go reform campaign finance. For some reason, you know, I, I think it's still a more direct route to do this legislatively as every single constitutional amendment has has been as opposed to trying to organize a convention of states. There's so much that we're so far behind in that process. And a convention of states, again, is still so unscripted. And if, if it ever came to pass, it would be so open to interpretation and hijacking by moneyed interest because it is new. There is no format for it. Remember, they left the idea open, but they, there was no playbook as to how this would go. So there's several potential paths and, pro and processes that could occur in order to pass legislation through this means. And I just think it's too risky. We can barely, you know, create a national campaign to promote progressive values through normal legislative means without even taking into account trying to organize a convention of states. I mean, the left is like herding cats as it is. I can't see it through the framework of a, of a COS movement. So that's my thought on that. Now, Celtic Apache says he agrees with me. I should just leave it at that. I agree with Max. It would be nice if world leaders could sit down and handle things diplomatically, but that just isn't the world we live in. Ah, this is back into the Ukraine issue. Okay. We have an update coming on that soon, unfuckers. That's uh, part of the phone a friend. 
Looking through history, world powers especially have had a hard time letting go of any power that they have, even if it was possible for China and the United States to sit down and handle Putin. That would require the United States to have a strong leader in place that was capable of such things. So uh, Celtic Apache does not believe that we have that leader in place. I don't disagree. Uh, and also that it would be far-fetched to think that we would get together with China to do something bold to hold Russia at bay. Again, I don't disagree with these things either. Uh, but I'm going to hold on this comment. I'm going to let, obviously, Celtic Apache have the time. Uh, and I'll hold space for that so people uh, know uh, where they're coming from. Uh, but we're going to be touching a little bit more on that in that upcoming episode that I teased uh, with our first phone of friends. So moving on, we've got Jimmy Q, who said, there are good people helping one another to try and put the world right. I'm even more committed to buying all my coffee from fair traded native grown suppliers. So Jimmy Q had actually sent a link uh, to another native uh, not, not native, but it, it, I think it was indigenously farmed fair trade coffee uh, that Jimmy is purchasing. And I applaud you for that effort. Uh, Jimmy said, you know, sorry if I'm uh, spreading the wealth a little bit, but wanted to make sure that uh, he was demonstrated that he was co as committed as ever. So thank you for that. Brenda M said, I'd love to see coffee travel mugs sporting UNFTR hashtags or maybe even just the names of your coffee blends. So would I, Brenda. So one of the things that 99 and I are working on the in the background is how to effectively set up a proper merchandise shop without adding to our day-to-day -day responsibilities. There are ways to do it, and I think we're pretty close to being able to launch that. Uh, it's a little more third-party and hands-off than we typically like because we're control freaks, to be honest. But I think it's kind of good to get some things out into the world and we need mugs and we need hats and we need shirts and we need some fun shit in the merch. So we're working on it, Brenda, and uh, we'll have an update on that, I would think, within a month or so. Maya C said, hey, I'm an expert in local currencies and community-based research. I studied the Salt Spring dollar for my master's thesis and am currently a PhD candidate in anthropology studying pension funds, sustainability and investments and ethical research methods for social scientists studying corporations. Holy shit. Well done, Maya C. That's going to be a big burgeoning field. The wider the net that ESG and sustainability travels in the world of finance, the more fuckery that's going to be there. But the more there will be a need for people that understand how to navigate this and how to channel investments and money into uh, things that are world-sustaining and earth-sustaining. So good stuff. So Maya said, I want to offer myself as a resource for your podcast. And in particular, I've been trying to find a lefty podcast interested in producing an episode on local currencies, the history, and the vast potential for communities living in economic despair today. Uh, Maya C., just so you know, I might not get to it right away, but I am definitely intrigued by this idea having covered sovereign currencies in our MMT episode, having spoken about it since then at Nausum, I think it's a really good place for us to go to talk about the other side of currency. So to talk about developing nations and the power of local currencies, they're more difficult to manage. It's much harder to get them as, a, as an instrument on global markets because everything does settle in dollar denominations. And most, if not all, government and non-government institutions will settle in dollar-denominated currency. So it's hard for local currencies to be as established as a sovereign currency nation in the developed world, like the OECD nations, for example. Uh, but it's a fascinating tale because so much of a nation's 
wealth and ability to take on debt, manage debt, leverage debt, pour money in through infrastructure comes down to the strength and the backing of their currency. And one of the ideas that's lost in discussions of currency is that you know, people talk about currency as a store of value. The store of value, well, what is that store? The store is faith. The store is confidence. Currency on its on its own is simply your belief that there is an intrinsic value. That's why the gold standard was as widely adopted and and ubiquitous as it was for so long, because you could look at something, you could see something, it was a resource, it was finite, it was shiny, it was pretty, it was all those fucking things, right? But it was something. When fiat was introduced, and then we actually took ourselves off the peg in the 70s, and it was pure fiat, the one intrinsic store of value was faith. Faith in a currency, which means faith in the issuer. And that here is the United States. So when people talk about the full faith and credit of the United States, that's really what they're talking about. It's like, do I believe that the United States is going to be a dominant superpower for many, many years to come for the for the life of my investment in whatever you're looking at? So talking about developing nations' currencies is a really fascinating topic. So Maya C., I love it. I'm all in. And uh, good luck with the uh, the PhD, by the way. That's big stuff. Now, Jean or Jean Sweet C said, I have a random question. Why does it look as if the blue states are so much more successful, but it looks like there are more red states, especially in politics? I even looked it up, and the first three states that are the richest seem to be blue on the list. That's a big and really good question. So a lot of this has to do with population, urban centers, technology centers. Those states that you're looking at probably have very robust urban economies that anchor the entire state. I'm assuming that New York is one of them. And as goes New York City, so goes New York State. California is dynamic with the number of cities that they have there. Also, we have the biggest populations. So, you know, that's not to sleep on places like Texas that also have big urban centers and they also have their own sub-economies like the fossil fuel economy that's there, mining economies, things like that. But the most successful in terms of, in terms of what? In terms of population health, in terms of uh, food security, in terms of tackling homelessness, things like that. I'm not sure who falls into the top 10 and the bottom. There are different rankings that are out there, obviously, but you know, education, literacy, health outcomes, healthcare access. Soon we're going to be able to add access to abortions and reproductive rights. We're going to be talking about you know, civil liberties, handgun deaths, and uh, violent crimes. All these different metrics go into talking about a quality of life. What is the tax base of a state? What is successful is, I think, the mo- is the better tributary question from what you're posing here, which is why do the blue states look like they're so much more successful, but there's more red states? Red states do have a tendency to shoot themselves in the foot. I remember during the period when the Affordable Care Act passed and we were sending funds to the states to help them balance their budgets post-financial crisis. Remember 2009, 10, 11, there was a lot going on in terms of helping the states kind of right their own ships. A lot of the red states did take the federal funds. Some of them refused it. And a lot of the red states that refused the pairing money for the ACA to help get people registered for health care on the federal exchanges, they simply didn't take the money. They didn't advertise it. And many of their citizens got left out in the cold being able to acquire health care. 
Now, again, I'm not a fan of the ACA, but just in terms of an approach, the red states have a tendency to shoot themselves in the foot if it's seen as a federal program, which is such bullshit. And it gets us back into those states' rights arguments. Like, why do we always, why does the right hold this idea that states' rights is more important than a population's health? It's a sickness and it's a crisis on the right, in my opinion, that they see things in this way or they've been allowed themselves to be sold this, you know, this bag of shit that a state's right to do something or not do something supersedes general welfare and health of a population. It's a sickness and a disease, but there's no great answer as to why that happens other than they've been fully propagandized and taught that uh, anything that a blue state gets is bad. So if that big blue state with the city in it is doing something, well, then it must be bad. So we're not we're going to go the other way with it, no matter how poor and how stupid our population winds up as a result. Steve S. said a couple quick notes on your recent show notes. Number one, I love the idea of an episode talking about disabilities, etc. So do I, Steve. And we have that on uh, we have that on the board and it will drop this year. If you're truly going to be a show about unfucking the republic, I think there's a lot to be said for spending more time on changes we can be making. The Cisneros call to action was great. In the end, much of what you talk about is how we're fucked and less about the unfucking. It's a tricky balance. I'm going to come back to that and I'm just going to read the last little bit here. Republicans don't have a better message. Republicans have an enormous structural advantage. We beat ourselves up on the left about our infighting and messaging, but we have to excel just to tread water. Mm. So in this last comment, uh, what Steve is talking about is the aggressive gerrymandering. Well, you know what? Gerrymandering does go both ways. And as we saw, New York just, you know, they fucked up their effort as much as DeSantis fucked up his effort in Florida. And uh, there are a number of blue states that are pretty, pretty well gerrymandered as well. The whole process needs to be fucking thrown out. And we should be looking at fairly drawn districts and rank choice voting across the board. If you had one electoral wish for this country other than to get rid of the Electoral College, it would be to have properly apportioned districts based upon, you know, basically just a, a smart geographical mapping and ranked choice. That's for another day. But as far as the better messaging, I think you actually have to go back, Steve, and, and understand that the redistricting, the gerrymandering is as a result of that messaging. The messaging and the propagandizing always comes first because it sort of lulls the constituency into thinking that something is a good idea or not a good idea. It's why so many of the red states can vote against their own self-interests. You have to fully propagandize your, your constituency to be able to pull off this type of fuckery. So I think that that actually preceded the gerrymandering and that it is because the Republicans have simple, better, straightforward, and evil messaging that they're able to get through so much of the shit that they've been able to get through over the last 50 years. As far as being a, a show about unfucking the Republic and offering more to-dos, this is something that 99's been harping on me about lately and in a productive way, not just a, you know, we have to do better and find more solutions. Sometimes, as I've said before, there are obvious solutions and we try to list them. Other times, I feel as though we can't even get to offering any solutions because nobody understands the crux of the issue. And we could go back through the catalog and look at so many of these things to understand, like, how can you offer a solution to something when nobody understands the problem? It's like, you know, giving somebody Motrin or Advil 
when they had their toe cut off. Like, what are we doing here? Like, reattach my toe first and then give me some pain medication. Like, we're always diagnosing things the wrong way uh, and trying to apply some sort of logic to it that doesn't relate to the root cause of the issue. So I feel as though half of our job is in unfucking is actually just to write the narrative, is to correct the narrative. If we think about a recent show like Student Debt, there were a number of really good ideas and outcomes that came from that show, none of which are really being talked about legislatively. But we can't introduce legislation. The best that we can hope for when something is so fucked and so entrenched in the system as the student debt problem is to untangle it first so that everybody has a better understanding of what's in front of them because then the proposed solutions down the road make more sense. We've already done the the hard work to untie the knot. Now it's just about getting back to business to do things the right way to correct it. So, you know, we can't come up with solutions all the time. You know, unfortunately, it's not like a, a law and order episode where we can fucking wrap this thing up at the end of 30 minutes and say, there, we caught the killer. Go back and listen to our libertarian episodes. When you look at the people that have constructed our current reality over the last 50 years and seen how hard they tried to tie the knots, we're not just going to untie a knot every single week and say, there, we fixed it. Because we got to go back in time to figure out how the fuck we got here. So those are my thoughts on that. Core A said, hi, Max99 and Manny Faces. I enjoy your show. Thanks for putting in the time. Well, you are welcome. I appreciate the topics you cover and the information you present. Something's been on my mind when you say blacks instead of black people, black folks, black community. It sounds off. I know it's common usage, but the term blacks lacks some humanity and sounds vague, perhaps a little objectifying. Just my thoughts keep up the good work. Core, if I have lazily said blacks, I'm trying to think of a context that I would have done it in, and I'm sure I could go back through and listen to it and find some instances where I did that. Uh, then uh, that is my, uh, that's on me. That uh, That is not the way that the community should be framed. Uh, it's it's funny because, you know, we have two sides of the show. We've got the, the spoken word side, and then we actually have the essays and Substack. And I think sometimes I will go back into Substack and find some things as I'm editing it to be to put it up on the weekends for everybody to read the essays that we base these on. And things like capitalizing black when we're talking about black people, but not capitalizing white when we talk about white people. There are certain developing themes. For example, like I remember in school, I was in middle school when I first heard the term African-Americans and it hit my ear sideways. I didn't understand it. Uh, especially because I knew a number of Caribbean black people. So African-Americans didn't resonate with me. And, I, and I've and i watched the language change over the decades to what is acceptable. We had the same conversation we were talking about Latino, Hispanic, or Latinx. Th- these are all developing. and But I can say, Cor, if I've said, you know, the blacks, X, Y, Z, that that's just wrong. And if I've done that, I apologize. You are absolutely right to catch me on that. And in the spoken word portion of the show, I will endeavor to do better and make sure that I don't, you know, do that in such a lazy way. Laura B said, first off, Manny. I love these, uh, these shout outs to Manny, because when you do your job, when you're an engineer like Manny, when you are the sound design maestro, sometimes 
the listeners almost forget that there's a person doing that. But so many people, like I remember when I talked to Brad at Swag, Brad said, man, I would kill to have your sound design to, to what Manny Faces brings to the show. But Manny Faces does such a good job that most of the time you, you almost forget. And that's the beauty of sound design. So uh, Laura B uh, calls out uh, Manny Faces first off and says, thank you for the jazzy bits you've mixed in the show notes. You really are a magician. I don't think anyone else could layer amazing sound. That's totally the right one for the moment. Over two people talking for two hours. It made me joyful at moments. Thank you. Hi, it's me, Manny Faces. I just want to say thanks. I really appreciate that. I couldn't agree more. Laura B, thank you for saying that out loud. On to thought two. Talking about those basic Dems, conservative Dems, the liberal Dems, and the progressive Dems, maybe we take a page out of the fossil fuel playbook for this one so we can talk about the thing and maybe have a chart or a graphic to explain it visually. The colors of hydrogen, basically oil and gas companies, have marketed hydrogen in a bunch of different colors so they sound less awful, more tech-centric, and most of the process is just glossed over. So interesting thought here. Laura, you're building on something that Gen S has actually been talking to us and uh, I've had difficulty getting back to Jenna specifically, who has a friend and a resource uh, who's also a coder that we're going to try to bring into the discussion at some point as well. I feel like there is a lot of work for us to do over the next couple of years together to help frame and market the progressive movement better. If if there's anything from my other professional life skill set that I feel like we can bring to the table here. It is the combination of marketing and storytelling and being able to more positively and authentically promote progressive values in a way that's easy for people to understand. We do have a marketing problem. We have a language problem on the on the left. And a lot of that all stems from debate, discourse, and always moving forward because we never just settle on a message. It's easy, it's easy for the right to always settle on the things were better 50 years ago, let's go there kind of language and messaging, make America great again messaging, rather than how do we move things forward when things are always changing and keep people on the same page? I like where you're going here with this, thinking about colors and hues and more, I think, beneficial and optimistic language, a better way to frame these issues so we can not lose messaging battles on things like defund the police, but actually like protect law enforcement and the community type messaging as opposed to, you know, what we went with. There's something here from Genesis's desire to do this in a data analytics fashion to Laura's desire to, you know, put this in a marketing capacity where we're, we're, we're basically doing what the shitbags on the evil side in oil and gas were able to do to color code things and make it softer and more palatable. We can do that because we actually have softer, more palatable and more popular ideas. We just don't know how to message them. So there's stuff here in the ether on fuckers. It's all coming together. We're going to figure out kind of what this looks like. And I do think that over the next couple of years together, we're going to put together some pretty incredible resources and together be able to shift some of the narrative. If we stay together, if we continue to grow, and if we do this the right way, I think we can do it. Anyway, Corey S., I get the push to get more progressives in office, but between decoupling infrastructure bills and now sending $40 billion to Ukraine, what the hell are their priorities anymore? Corey Bush was the only progressive I saw that defended her position while acknowledging that it will primarily benefit 
private defense contractors and fuel the increased risks of direct war and the potential for direct military confrontation between the U.S. and Russia. Great. It blows my mind that after Iraq and Afghanistan, the people that continue to listen to the same warmongers are on the same mainstream media outlets and completely buy in again. Now, Corey continues saying, so now Biden's going to Riyadh with the goal of persuading Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to help the U.S. alliance win its economic war against Russia. So in order to punish Vladimir Putin for his war crimes and his assault on freedom and democracy, Biden will be courting a tyrannical war criminal whose country has no freedom or democracy. Oh, man, Corey, you're saying a lot of good stuff here. I don't believe that it's the progressives fault that they decoupled the infrastructure bill. You know, I, I don't think we had the muscle. I'm surprised it was and thrilled that it was held up as long as it did. But uh, and the $40 billion to Ukraine, you know, I have a problem with. Well, this is a touchy subject. Again, we're going to tackle it a little bit more because I'm not opposed to sending military aid to, to Ukraine. I just my fear is that we're going to be supporting a long and protracted war of attrition where Ukrainians are fighting a foe that does not care about its people, but whose people have been, again, fully propagandized to believing that their leader is doing the right thing. It is a Putin playbook to do this. He has done it literally his entire career. It's why he's still at the helm. And this protracted bloody affair will go on perhaps for years with huge losses on both sides. <sighs> that that sees no conclusion and at some point we're going to stop caring like it's literally just going to be gone from the news cycle just as afghanistan's now out of the news cycle just as syria's out of the news cycle as libya's out of the news cycle as iraq is out of the news cycle and so on and so on and so on as far as biden going to riyadh to you know hang out with mbs over there that's another issue that is just so it's so distasteful. I mean, Khashoggi assassination has never been properly dealt with. And MBS, that's Mohammed bin Salman, is just getting a pass on that. I mean, we know that he murdered a Reuters journalist, an American journalist. And we're just going to normalize it. We know that we continue to send a treasure trove of weapons to the Saudis as well. We sell it to them because the military industrial complex will hold that contract up as really important to our national defense, national defense, meaning lining their pockets. I, We're going to ask a question in a couple of weeks of people much, much smarter in foreign policy that will hopefully frame a few arguments for us going forward. But I'm just going to I'm just so I'm going to hold on that for now. Uh, but I hear you, Corey. I know that the progressives seem like they talk a good game and then punt. And and I think that's true on a lot of levels, but it doesn't dissuade me from trying to push everyone in a more progressive direction and to normalize progressive ideas and values because the more normalized and popular that they are, the easier it's going to be for even people that aren't hardwired to be progressive to jump on board and back something that's extremely popular and has a chance to pass. Fary J said, hi, Max, and thanks for the update. Love your show and have learned more from it than any of my university courses. And I was stupid enough to go up to PhD, wow, and be drawn by student loans. 
I'm researching into how aesthetics replaced politics and why. What are the consequences? I was wondering if you please have a session on it. I would much appreciate it. How aesthetics has replaced politics. I suppose the cheap starting point for this would be Kennedy beating Nixon because of the televised debates that people who listened to the debates thought Nixon won, the people that watched it thought that Kennedy won. Uh, do we have more style over substance these days? Yeah, I suppose. Although I don't know how much style Donald Trump really had. It's sort of a, a different animal on his own. But style over substance, I think there's a very good argument to be made for that if that's what we're talking about, about aesthetics replacing politics. But to a large degree, politics has always been window dressing. You know, what re looks really good, but doesn't really do anything for anybody. So I'm not sure that that's a modern phenomenon as much as it's just gotten a lot worse because we live in a short attention span environment where looks matter more than substance. So last thing before we move on to social media, Bookstore Kim sent in a suggestion for any of those in a rural area with election woes. She says, anyone living in a rural area, I just wanted to give a shout out to the book Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It by Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodward. I will absolutely be ordering that for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's a really good topic. And two, Bookstore Kim said it's great. And if Bookstore Kim said it's great, you know it's fucking great. So let's get on it. We'll add that. <laughs> I won't be adding anything because you know I don't know how to do it. Uh, but we'll add that to the bookshop when 99 hears this in show notes and says, I guess I have to do that now uh, because he said it out loud. Anyway, thank you, Bookstore Kim. I appreciate that. Now let's get into social media. This is not going to be as structured as it normally is because you know that I suck at social. So I picked off a couple of quick things and then I'm just going to kind of go through the feeds and see what uh, catches my eye here. Uh, first off, Nettie McGee said the only reason the it's fucked for sure bill passed is because Trump couldn't get it done. The rest of Biden's time was planning his war on Putin. Uh, so giving credit for only one bill. That was kind of already in the making uh, because Trump had been talking about the infrastructure years and then Biden actually did get it done. You got to give credit where credit is due. But everything else is stalled now because, uh, yeah, I think it's more politically expedient and popular for Biden to forget uh, any of the things that he promised domestically and just focused on what's going to happen abroad that's going to put us in the best light for the midterms and any sort of reelection campaign for the Democrats. Spencer Ryan Sumanic said, hey, UNFTR community, just listened to an interview with Stephen Marche about his new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from an American Future, and I'm wondering if it's worth a read. Has anyone out there read it? If so, what are your thoughts? Uh, so maybe hop over to Facebook or to the Twitters and uh, comment on that. If anybody's read the book or they think it's a good one for us to add to the Unfucking Bookshop, let us know. And Knudsen said, when you mentioned the New York State or city retirement system as being some of the best, I was ready to say the Wisconsin system is better. Double-checked it first, and then Horry Milton Friedman's ghost. New York State and city systems are now ranked better than Wisco's. I'm thinking we lost pace here in the land of beer and cheese due to that chode Scott Walker. That Ein-loving uncle fuck nugget acolyte is still fucking us. We'd have the newest high-speed passenger rail in Wisconsin if that expelled cancer turd hadn't been elected, for another example. Uh, I'm down to shit on Scott Walker anytime you want to. Uh, dig that, Knudsen. And uh, what Knudsen's responding to is in show notes, I had mentioned uh, that I have great fondness 
for a public official who I believe is peerless in terms of integrity. And that is Tom DiNapoli, who is the New York State Controller and oversees uh, all of the pension funds and all of the uh, retirement fund systems in New York State. He's a tremendous elected official, a wonderful person and a remarkable human being. And um, boy, we need a lot more people like him that are just beyond reproach and just full of integrity. So the Punisher wagon said, preach it, Max. Trickle down doesn't work if the money class is bypassed. And we can't have that, can we? I'm just going to kind of go through here some other stuff. Andrew Higgins is still pissed at me for my take on Ukraine. And I totally get that. You can uh, join him in fucking with me on Facebook if you would like. Dave Gajda is out there making some comments. Uh, realistically, there's probably more behind the scenes, but even all things being equal, if neither were incumbents, there were no deal struck, she probably endorsed him. Why? Because the Democrats spend more of their time, energy, and money fighting progressives, not Republicans, and Pelosi doesn't want more to get elected. Talking about the Cisnero campaign. So interesting. I wanted to just kind of lean onto that last point. Nancy Pelosi would rather lose to a Republican than fight progressives in the House. How interesting. Does anybody else agree with that? Because I kind of feel like that might be the case. I kind of feel like when she goes back and forth between uh, being minority leader and majority leader, that uh, there's benefits to that from her perspective, just in terms of being able to maintain power. Interesting. Uh, Carolyn Stetson said, I'm no economist, but the podcast was clear and concise and gave me perspective on what's happening with today's economy. And that is related to our recession episode. And a bunch of people left reviews, by the way. A.R. Ordu said, I left one, but it was accidentally under my son's account. Maybe he'll leave another one under my actual name. I am not going to get into reviews, by the way, because I don't know how to find them. <laughs> I seriously have no idea where to look. They just sort of magically appear on my sheet uh, when 99 puts it together. Over on the Twitters, we've got B England, who put it out there that uh, fixing oil prices is not rocket scientist, is not rocket science, rather. All you have to do is look at the Onion Futures Act. UNFTR pod and Pitchfork Economics could do a better job than 90% of these advisors. I appreciate that callback to the Onion Futures Act. That's from our crude oil episode and how uh, it's going to be impossible for us to kind of manipulate or get a hold of commodities prices and oil prices if we don't attack the market that they are traded on. That's the piece that everybody's kind of missing. That speculative behavior will do what it will do to benefit the moneyed class when they need to find gains basically somewhere. So again, just as a quick refresher, if there's no money in the bond market and there's no money in the stock market, where do you go to find returns and to find value? You go to the commodities market. If you're one of these big trading houses that has the ability to basically make a market by pushing up oil prices, even when it doesn't reflect any authentic supply and demand problems or issues that might be in the in the wider marketplace, remember, there's still enough supply to meet demand, if not exceed it. And we still have strategic reserves all around the world to manage oil prices. There's no reason the crude oil prices should be where they are. It's because speculative behavior is pumping it up and it's keeping them artificially high. You know what else artificially high oil prices are also doing? Keeping Russia really, really well funded in their efforts to fight the war and litigate it against Ukraine. So if you want to do the best thing that you can for the Ukrainians, 
then tackle the oil markets, tackle the commodities markets, and maybe delist oil and natural gas from the markets and watch it all of a sudden settle down to normal economic factors of supply and fucking demand instead of these things being artificially high and and making literally billions of dollars for trading desks at oil companies, oligarchs around the world, and the governments that steal their money. Okay? If you want to settle that crisis over there, you really want to take money out of Russia's pockets, it's not going to happen through sanctions for a very, very fucking long time. The only way you could do that is if oil prices all of a sudden drop down to $50, $60 a barrel, which is probably where they fucking should be, because that's enough for oil companies and everyone down the pipeline to make money, but not enough to create an artificial fucking war fund for oligarchs and bad actors. There you fucking go. Sorry. Now, on Twitter, uh, Dan Hasselis and JD20 uh, liked a tweet that we were in. Nettie McGee was all over it. Knudsen's all over it. Legally Abigail said UNFTR pod challenge. Give each one a really good name like you suggested with the BBB bills. Uh, Put that out to uh, Mueller, she wrote. Why don't House Democrats pass 10 clean single issue bills? Hey, that uh, that was one of our ideas. I guess that's why Legally Abigail put that out there. Thank you for acknowledging that. Crash Fist Fighter. I don't have my glasses on. 99 would kill me right now. I think it's Crash Fist Fighter said, hey, you and FTR pod, how about shouting out Elisa Elizabeth Apps? Oh, fuck, I can't read this. In her race against Kate March in Colorado House HD6, Max keeps talking about paying attention to local races. How about highlighting this one? All right, we're going to highlight the Colorado HD6 race. Colorado's most interesting Democratic primary might be for a state house. Even though it's between two Democrats, it feels like the general election between two candidates with opposing views. I will dig more into that, Craig, and uh, see if we can append that to one of our episodes. Thank you. Oh, man. Whole bunch of stuff happening over on the Twitters. Tomato Top, I thought this podcast had some good insight on inflation. We're sharing our inflation episode. Thank you for that, Tomato Top. Is it loyal, loyal on fucker. Uh, they're always uh, sending out great messages there. And Flatliner 74, Noe Garcia, JD20 again. Oh, here's a good one. Shirley Gott said Lincoln was gay. <laughs> and Roosevelt's wife was in love with Lorena Hickok, campaign reporter. Please unfuck this myth that heterosexuality has always been the norm. Did you know lifestyle people are still in the closet? UNFTR pod, you're going to love this rabbit hole. And Shirley Gott, you're going to love a rabbit hole that I'm going to go on later in the summer when we release our new feature because you just touched on something that is going to appear. That's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, obviously I suck at going through social media. 99 is really going to have my head for this. So why don't I just go over to the support for the show and call it a fucking day before I torture anybody anymore. First of all, Tomato Top. Hey, we were just talking about Tomato Top. Tomato Top 1 sent us 10 coffees. Good Lord. 10 coffees, I guess just for being cool. Maria from Puerto Rico bought us three coffees again, I guess just for being cool. And Dan M also bought us three coffees. Thank you for the support. We really appreciate that. And now we've got three new members to the show. And I want to thank you all. We've got C. Julio, Cheeky Monkey, and Dan M who all hopped on board to become sustaining members of this show, a monthly membership that helps support all of our bullshit. That's all I got for today on Fuckers. Thank you to all of the new people that joined as members. Thank you to everybody that left us a tip at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. 
uh, for, I guess, you know, just liking what we do. Appreciate you. I miss 99. If you can't tell, I'm confident that you all did as well. Love to Manny Faces behind the glass for putting this all together and enduring uh, some other bullshit that we had during the show. Our studio is not soundproofed well enough. We figured that out because now that everybody's returning to work from COVID, uh, we share a wall with a company that has some pretty interesting characters. For example, the person today that I had to wait uh, to finish a conversation first talked about the house that they're building out in the Hamptons, uh, then was talking about the two cars that he has in his shop, and uh, then had a whole phone conversation about his workout and cardio. This might have been the biggest douchebag that I've ever heard on three separate phone calls. Not sure how much work is getting done in that office uh, next to us, but uh, good Lord. Uh, anyway, so Manny had to endure that while I waited for those phone conversations because it was like the guy was in the studio taking the phone calls. We're going to be back on the weekend with a full on fucking. We've got a really good roster of shows coming up. Really meaty shit. And the last little bit of housekeeping that I want to go over with you all before we go is um, I think we're going to take the first two weeks of August off to reset and reboot. So we've been burning it at both ends for almost a year. I think it's almost time to recover and bring this old engine in for a tune-up. I have more plans for this show than I have time. So looking to restore a little bit of balance so we can come back strong and unfuck things for the balance of the year. Don't forget, Friday, June 10th is Fuck Milton Friedman Day. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman. So get active with your hashtags, FMF, on uh, all sorts of the social medias. And I will catch you on the weekend, unfuckers. Much love, and uh, here's praying that 99 comes back from a couple days away to salvage this show. Peace out. Oh, this fucking guy in the next room keeps having meetings talking about his fucking house that he's building and this car that he's extending the lease on. This motherfucker. Got to pause for a minute, Manny. Sorry. Fuck. This guy's doing like no work. He's just sitting there on the phone bragging. I hear to people. You. Yeah, no, Max doesn't even know I'm in the next fucking room. Fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I'm out in New York because I'm, uh, I'm building this new house. This, uh, this is going to be great, man. It's fucking big house. I'm making so much money off of this fucking podcast thing, man. It's crazy. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, I'm going to extend the lease on my, on my car another couple of years just because, you know, fuck it. It's a Ferrari. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on. <laughs> oh, man. Listen, I got to get back to fucking my workout, man. These guns aren't going to gun show themselves. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I got to do more cardio and shit, but, you know, fuck it. Anyway, man, um, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see Max soon. I'm not, I'm not going to let him know I'm right next door to him and shit. He'll fucking be like, yeah, come on in and do a fucking show. We'll do it in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 99 is absent. You could fill in for her. Fuck that. I'm going to the gym, bro.